Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our crime report. Two members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union have been arrested on fraud charges that allege they caused two medical clinics to build the union's health care plan for chiropractic services that either were not provided or were not medically necessary. 49-year-old Sergio Amador of Downey and 52-year-old David Gomez of San Pedro were arrested by federal authorities. The two pleaded not guilty to charges contained in an indictment that was returned by a federal grand jury. The indictment alleges that they received at least a quarter million dollars from the scheme and charges both defendants with 27 counts of mail fraud. If convicted, each would face a statutory maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison for each count of mail fraud. The union represents dock workers at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Union members receive benefits, including health care benefits through the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union Pacific Maritime Association Welfare Plan. Amador and Gomez opened a clinic in Long Beach in 2009, operating under the name Port Medical that purported to provide general medical and chiropractic care. The next year, they opened a second clinic operating under the same name in San Pedro. They both also created medical management companies that received funds generated by the medical clinics. Incentives were then paid to welfare plan members to use the port medical clinics and to encourage other union members to use them as well. When some welfare plan members went to the port medical clinics for treatment, they were allegedly asked to sign their names on multiple sign-in stickers. On other occasions, signatures on sign-in stickers were forged. The sign-in stickers were to be used to create chart entries that falsely indicated the welfare plan members had received chiropractic services when no such services had been provided. The indictment also alleges that the two encouraged plan members to go to the clinics to receive massages, heat and ice treatments, and other services that were not medically necessary. And in regulatory news, the DWC has announced the 2016 Audit Performance Standards. The Labor Code requires the DWC Audit and Enforcement Unit to conduct a profile audit review for all California workers' compensation claims adjusting locations at least once every five years. The audit reviews performance of the adjusting locations in five areas of claim administration, including the timely payment of accrued and undisputed indemnity, and the correct provision of benefit notices with QME and AME advice. The Administrative Director annually establishes profile and full compliance audit standards. The 2016 standards are based on the audit results of the several prior years. The 2016 performance standard for profile audits conducted in 2016 is 1.51082. Those with performance ratings below this standard will be required to pay any unpaid compensation, but no penalties will be assessed. But if performance ratings are higher than this standard, 
The audit will expand to a full compliance audit and an additional sample of claims will be audited. The full compliance performance standard for audits conducted in 2016 is 1.67880. More information on the performance standards will be posted on the DWC Audit and Enforcement Unit webpage. The Audit and Enforcement Unit of the DWC has posted the Spanish version of the Revised Benefit Notice Manual on the DWC website. The English version has previously been posted. The safe harbor provisions of the regulations say that benefit notices using these samples are presumed to be adequate unless modified and shall not be subject to audit penalties. The revisions include elimination of the requirement to provide fact sheets as attachments to notices. Also, a reduction of the requirement to provide a QME panel request form with notices. There's an elimination of the warning notice language at the top of each page and provisions for employees and their attorneys to choose to receive electronic service of notices. The benefit notice regulations take effect on January 1. Despite assertions by some that the UR and IMR process results in denial of care for injured workers, a new CWCI analysis shows that about 96% of treatment services are approved and delivered to injured workers and that the multiple levels of medical review have produced a system with a high degree of consistency for approving care while maintaining the state's evidence-based medicine standard. While a means of resolving medical necessity disputes is common to almost all other healthcare delivery systems, including group health and federal programs, workers' compensation is not like these other systems. Co-payments, deductibles, and enrollee contractual language, commonly shared risk strategies used in group health to manage utilization and costs are precluded by law in workers' compensation claims. From the moment California introduced IMR into the system, debate over the medical dispute resolution process intensified. The CWCI's new report expands on its prior analyses using data from a sample of 5.6 million workers' compensation medical services and from the nearly 82,000 IMR decision letters. Key findings are that almost 85% of the medical services in the study sample were paid without being a request for an RFA and without undergoing UR for medical necessity. That's 85%. These services were paid based on the claims administrator's parameters for approval. Only 15% of the medical services were requested in RFAs and underwent a UR. Of these, 60% were accepted by reviewers who determined that they were medically necessary under the treatment guidelines, and 40% were sent for review by a UR physician. Of the 6% of services submitted for UR, 1.1% were modified and 3.2% were denied. Of these, 
IMR physicians upheld 89.1% of the UR denials and modifications and overturned 10.9%. This is consistent with the 91% uphold rate from the CWCI study of 2014 IMR outcomes. And it indicates that the majority of modifications or denials made by UR physicians are in line with evidence-based medicine. Almost half of the IMR decisions rendered between January and June of 2015 involved disputes over prescription drugs. One-third involved requests for opioids, while 11% involved compounded drugs. The top 10% of physicians involved in IMR disputes were identified in more than 80% of all IMR determination letters, while the top 1%, which is 97 physicians, were named in 40% of the IMR letters. The estimated approval rate for all California workers' comp medical services ranges between 95.7% and 96.1%. The high level of agreement at the different stages of medical review fulfills the legislative intent to provide injured workers with the most effective medical care through a process that is more objective, transparent, and consistent. The DWC has posted a notice of modification to the Chronic Pain Medical Treatment Guidelines and the Opioids Treatment Guidelines of the MTUS Regulations. Their proposed modifications include clarification of the definition for chronic pain as pain lasting three or more months from the initial onset of pain. This is the same definition used elsewhere in the regulations. Also, there is a replacement of the words must and required with the words should and recommended where appropriate in the proposed opioid treatment guidelines. This is to clarify that guidelines are designed to assist providers by offering an analytical framework that is not intended to mandate specific clinical practices. The addition of pregnancy as a condition for consideration when tapering opioids with reference to the Medical Board of California's guidelines has been added for further guidance. The statement that naloxone is not recommended for patients on chronic opioid treatment has been removed to reflect evolving scientific knowledge on the benefits and risk of this medication to treat opioid overdose. The words soft tissue have been deleted from a section heading to clarify that the recommendations for moderate to severe injuries are not limited to soft tissue injuries. The text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. Calosha cited Quantum Energy Storage Corporation in Poway for more than $58,000 for a June explosion caused by an out-of-control 11,000-pound metal flywheel. One worker suffered a broken ankle, and three others were treated for abrasion injuries caused by flying debris. Kalosha investigators learned that the nearly seven feet in diameter flywheel was placed in a concrete vault area installed in the warehouse for tests of the energy storage system. 
The flywheel was spinning at 6,000 rotations per minute and had just begun the process of winding down when it failed. The flywheel came loose and crashed into the vault's guardrails, causing enough damage to the roof, interior, and walls of the building so that the building was deemed unsafe to enter. No steps had been taken to enclose the vault or minimize hazards where the employees worked. Computer stations were not located at a safe distance, nor were they designed to limit employee exposure in the event of uncontrolled release of electrical or mechanical energy. Kalosha issued 16 citations to quantum energy storage for violations of multiple health and safety standards, including the Safe Practices for Operating Machinery standard. The citations included five that were serious in nature and one classified as serious accident-related. A serious violation is when there is a realistic possibility that death or serious harm could result from the hazardous condition. Kalosha Chief Julian Sum warned that California employers must take precautions to protect employees from on-the-job hazards, including machinery operated in closed, confined spaces. The workers harmed by this explosion could have died because the employer did not secure or cover the flywheel to prevent the release of mechanical energy. And in medical news, a new study shows that doctors still order too many unnecessary tests. This study used surprise visits by undercover instructors posing as patients. But the approach did little to deter trainee doctors from ordering unnecessary tests or to better focus them on their patients' goals. The UC Davis Health System investigators claim there is a problem of tests and procedures that are often medically unnecessary and not beneficial to the patient. In the study of almost 60 second-year doctors, a male fake patient requested an MRI for lower back pain and a middle-aged woman asked for a bone mineral density testing. Both are considered overused tests according to the Choose Wisely program. This is a program which aims to avoid wasteful or unnecessary medical testing, treatments, and procedures through education of both doctors and patients. The undercover instructors eventually broke character and critiqued the doctors in training on their techniques for addressing the patient's concern apart from just ordering the requested test. The study team theorized that fewer tests might be ordered if doctors were more patient-centered. Then, to see if the real-life challenges combined with feedback would get the message across to these doctors, the researchers sent the instructors to visit 30 internal medicine and family medicine residents at two clinics in California, and to another 31 residents who served as a control group. Members of the control group did not receive feedback from their fake patients. Following the first trial, researchers sent the undercover instructors back for up to three unannounced visits to different residents over the following 3 to 12 months to request similar tests. Overall, the residents ordered the low-value tests in about 27% of visits, and that rate did not change across the trial. Essentially, for the most part, it was not an effective intervention 
according to the article published in the JMA. The Journal of the American Medical Association editors theorized that overuse of diagnostic tests is too deeply ingrained into the medical culture to be improved by a brief intervention. And in other news, efforts to legalize marijuana in California got a boost this week after competing ballot measures joined forces behind the stronger of the two. The resulting compromise is backed by billionaire Sean Parker, a former resident of president of Facebook. The initiative has the support of the Democratic Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and the Coalition for Cannabis Policy Reform. Coalition board member Antonio Gonzalez, who is also president of the Latino Voters League, said the coalition withdrew its rival initiative after Parker's measure was modified to protect children, workers, and small businesses. The move brings to a close weeks of behind-the-scenes negotiations aimed at closing the gaps between the initiatives amid concerns that neither would succeed if both wound up on the ballot for 2016. Marijuana use is illegal under federal law in the United States, but 23 states allow the use of pot for medical purposes. Recently, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon have approved recreational use, and Alaska is set to allow it next year. Voters in Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona could face ballot initiatives next year intended to legalize marijuana. In California, amendments filed this week to Parker's proposal would allow local governments a greater say in where marijuana can be sold, toughen protections for children, including a ban on marketing to minors, and explicit warning labels on marijuana products and require safety standards and enforcement of labor laws for people who work in the industry. The measure would tax marijuana sales and cultivation, raising hundreds of millions of dollars for the state. California has the largest marketplace for medical marijuana sales in the United States. Nationwide, medical and recreational marijuana is expected to bring in $3.6 billion in revenue in 2015. This will grow to $13.4 billion over the next five years. A marijuana legalization initiative failed in California in 2010, but public opinion is shifting. Parker's deep pockets suggest that his initiatives will be well-funded. In 2010, supporters invested $3.5 million in Proposition 19, outspending opponents nearly 8 to 1 but the measure failed amid concerns that it did not protect children or guard against driving under the influence. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.
Thank you.